All right, so let's get started. Um, we're uh, doing things a little backwards today, so I'm doing the 10.30 message at 9.30. So those of you who uh, are following along this series will have some continuity by being here at 9.30. At 10.30, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about some new direction we're trying to take. and Well, not really new, but we're just trying to get more people in the church to be aware of all the resources we've developed and how to use them and stuff. So we're going to, we've, uh, uh, as you know, historically, we always have a book of the year. And I think it was two years ago that we uh, ventured into, because the book was pretty difficult, we decided to have two books of the year in case that the one book was too difficult for for some people, and uh, so this year we're upping that, and we have three books of the year this year, but uh, o- only one of them's a little bit difficult. None of them are particularly that difficult, so there's, there's on Vesh and Deanna. All right, so uh, we're still on our Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. Hopefully, um, Josiah can put up the 15... Emphasis, but this outline again has room for them, so they're at the end of, of the outline on the back. So we've been on emphasis 3C for a while, which uh, emphasis 3 is the whole idea of the church, and uh, 3C is actually kind of a, I don't know, it's uh, almost like an insert to the topic of the church. It, what we're trying to do is open our eyes to understand the whole New Testament as a whole. Um, beginning in uh, the late 1800s, uh, um, out, really, well, even going back to the Reformation, there was a movement called the Anabaptist movement, and we're, we don't have time to get into that too much. But the Anabaptists had a, a certain amount of what was called pietism, and... Uh, and so forth. And so the trend began that, that, that probably grew and kind of reached its peak from, say, 1890 to 1920 of seeing the Old Testament as discontinuous with the New Testament so that there became an idea that when you're reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're very, very different test covenants and very different books and they really don't have that much relation to one another to the point where the Old Testament is um, considered to be not very important. And if you don't think that's true, that, that idea prevailed in, in evangelical Christianity coming out of what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, uh, which all that is, 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 you know, these big words are not that hard to understand. The modernist controversy sort of was the initiator, you might say, and that was a lot of ideas that undermined the authority of all Scripture. First and foremost was an anti-supernatural worldview that also then embraced evolution or Darwinism. And uh, so what that uh, undermined was... um, uh, the whole idea that God is a uh, supernatural God. To, re- to read the Bible correctly, you have to understand that this was not, uh, the, the, the Bible weren't ideas that occurred to people, and it wasn't an evolution of, of ideas. If you read a lot of humanistic uh, 
studies of ancient times, you'll, they will claim that the Hebrews were the first people who evolved in religion enough to postulate the idea of monotheism, that there was one God. And of course, uh, Adam was a monotheist, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, so were his kids, uh, Cain, Abel, and Seth, and, and uh, I don't know the rest of their names, but uh, they had other sons and daughters, as the Bible clearly says. And um, um, so monotheism isn't some evolved idea that's, that occurred to natural-minded uh, people with some humanistic uh, developmental process. It, God revealed himself as one because God is one. And so, therefore, uh, he revealed himself. And if you uh, real, remember uh, when we did have two books of the year, the one book was uh, a book about the Old Testament called The Heart of the Old Testament, which the author is helping us learn something that, that we emphasize a lot here at Grace Christian Fellowship, to learn to read whole books of the Bible. A lot of evangelical hermeneutics or how evangelicals understand the Bible is sort of preconceived theological ideas that they've jumped to conclusions to, to develop. And then you find uh, proof text to back up your idea. And the proof texts are taken, lifted out of context and designed to prove one particular point about prayer or worship or marriage or whatever the subject may be. When in fact, uh, books of the Bible weren't written that way. Books of the Bible were written by one author, and they had one major idea, just like you would do if you were writing a term paper or a book. You wouldn't write a term paper about 27 discontinuous ideas that are unrelated. Not if you expected to get something above a D minus. <laughs> you know, uh, you would write a term paper or a book about one theme that you're trying to prove. And so to look uh, at whole books of the Bible in terms of the major idea of that book and then put them in the context of the background of the entire rest of the scriptures is a necessary way to study uh, the Bible, okay? So uh, the reason we chose that book, The Heart of the Old Testament, was actually given to us by our good friends who were at the wedding yesterday, uh, Wayne and Sandy McNamara. Wayne uh, started using it a few years ago in his Bible survey class, and I substitute teach for that class oh, a couple times a year. And um, so he showed it to me, and we did, were discussing it, and he, of course, graciously gave me a copy, and I read it and said, wow, this is, this." whether you like the ideas or not, uh, the very, the big idea that we should be looking at what are the major themes of the Old Testament that, whether you agree with the selection of the nine major themes he's chosen, uh, that's the proper way to start thinking about Scripture. And until you start thinking about Scripture that way, you'll miss most of the point when you're reading. So, of course, the major theme of Scripture is Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom, and the coming to this earth of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, uh, God's reign is perfectly righteous and full of glory and full of his presence that heaven is. God is in the process of bringing that to earth. 
And so, and he is bringing that through the king of the kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's this kind of a starting point. And then there's, of course, major ideas like covenant and, and monotheism and so forth. Uh, interestingly, that particular book, The Heart of the Old Testament, has 10 chapters on nine themes because he rightfully considers covenant such an important theme that he wrote two chapters on that one. Okay, so anyway, so what we've been doing the last five weeks or so is we've been looking at the continuity between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Because whether you ever went to church or not, if you grew up in an English-speaking country and you were born sometimes after 1830, I think most of us in this room were born after 1830, you know, except maybe me. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, um, you know, I'm really old. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so if you, if you, if you are, uh, again, an English-speaking Christian or a non-Christian, you've actually been influenced by a deep-seated cultural milieu that the, that the two covenants are super discontinuous whether you've ever been to a church or not. Uh, John Bradbury, who's with us today, uh, was probably uh, one of the least churched people that when we first started doing Bible studies and so forth. You'd probably been to a church two to three times in your life at, at that point. Maybe five times, okay. In over 20, how many years? I, you were probably 25 or so at the time because uh, that was about seven years ago or so, right? And uh, so, um, and John was deeply affected by the idea that the New Testament uh, totally supersedes the Old Testament to the point that the Old Testament's not that important. And if you don't think that's true, here, uh, just think about this. Think about your, if you had a Christian background, if you've gone to church, if you went to Bible college, if you went to a Christian school or something of that nature, Think about how many messages on the Old Testament you heard versus how many on the New. Think about how much time was devoted to the Old Testament to anything more than Bible stories about, you know, Bible characters. Because, of course, in uh, part of the fundamentalist modernist controversy was that the fundamentalist side of the equation rightfully said we've got to do something to break down the, 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 fa- the distinction between clergy and lady. This is probably, the ch- of, of any church I've ever been involved in, this is probably the most, uh, the least uh, clergy-laity distinction. We, you know, all kinds of people do all kinds of important things in this church. There's at least 30 or 40 people who do the important stuff. And uh, for everything from Bible studies to leading worship to whatever, ministry, counseling, all sorts, deliverance, all sorts of things. And so um, there, there sometimes is kind of this idea where the clergy are professional people and they are equipped with an intellectual degree from a cemetery. I'm a seminary, sorry, a Freudian slip. Um, and uh, 
they uh, therefore are qualified to expound on the Bible and you're not. And I would agree that we have way too much idea that everyone can expound on the Bible uh, without the idea that you have to do proper study to get there. But the, the idea of the Reformation, and frankly the idea of in, that was prevalent in Israel, the idea that catechism was based on, which was uh, something done in, in the Old Testament that was, absor- that was carried over to the New Testament practices, the word catecheo appears, I believe, eight times in the New Testament. And uh, the, the, it was a type of teaching whereby you were asked questions and you recited scriptures for the answer and you were uh, trained in the major ideas of the faith that way. That was what, and that was very prevalent among the apostles. Catechism was restored to the church by the Protestant reformers Today you'll get a lot of people who will think catechism's a Roman Catholic idea, but actually Roman Catholics had lost the practice of it throughout the Middle Ages, and therefore the Luther restored it to the church. Luther's catechism was a very important event in church history. So um, with, that, uh, with that whole idea, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, what, hap- what happened during the fundamentalist monarchist controversy is that fundamentalists rightfully said we should break down the clergy-laity distinction because Jesus and the apostles were all about training and equipping the saints for the average saint to do the work of the ministry. That's, in fact, what Paul's talking about in in his greatest epistle about the church, Ephesians, which is full of, I I draw 12-word pictures of the church from the book of Ephesians. Uh, You know, if you want a little interesting study, just kind of memorize the phrase, Ephesians is about the church of Jesus Christ, and Colossians is about the Jesus Christ of the church. And read those two epistles as they as as meant to go together because they were. And and uh, Colossians emphasizes uh, Christ, Christology, the study of the deity of Christ and all sorts of attributes of Christ. And Ephesians emphasizes that Christ gave the church. And in a great statement about the church in Ephesians four, it says that Christ gave. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, which many people called the fivefold ministry. I personally combine that with 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and add helps and administrations, and I call those the seven ministry gifts to the church. Uh, but um, those were given by Christ as parts, little, his breaking off pieces of his, of his heart and of his ways and his practices. That was how he functioned in those seven ministries, all of them, perfectly. And so uh, Christ gave those to the church for what? To, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're, uh, the instinct by, by the fundamentalist movement in the 1870s and so forth to have to break down the clergy laity distinction was a good biblical instinct. 
And so uh, the practice of Sunday school was developed. And, but what there was at that point, there was a, a kind of a fork in the road historically, and the fork was this. We can either do all the hard work it would take to equip the average Christian, the average saint. You're a saint if you're a Christian. You're set apart to God, Saint Joshua. And uh, so you, uh, that's, that's Saint Caleb uh, and Saint Teresa. Uh, so, uh, uh, <laughs> Liz House likes that one. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, we could either do the work to get Saint Sindhu qualified to instruct uh, to catechize the average person or we can dumb down the content of the catechism. And guess what was chosen? That's where Veggie Tales was ultimately born, not a direct line. But, uh, but, but the idea was uh, we are going to introduce Bible stories instead of actual concrete theological content because it doesn't take much biblical equipping to teach Bible stories. Okay? And so that became a trend that everyone in this room has been influenced by, whether you know it or not. And it greatly changes the meaning of the Scriptures. Because then you tell the story of, uh, say, David and Goliath. And uh, hopefully, if you're, if, you're not, if you're on the liberal side of the equation, then you're taught that that story is a fictional story, but it has a good lesson in it. And then if you're on the conservative side of the equation... You're told this is a biographical, historical, inerrant story that the facts happened. Just as it's written in Scripture. And it has a, a point in it. But in both cases, the point is be more like David. Try harder and go beat up those giants that are holding you back that you're scared of. Quit cowering before the giants like the Israelites. This is the New Testament. We're so much, we have such a better covenant. Go and beat up those Philistines in your life, which are not your roommates, by the way. Uh, <laughs> or or, or your, uh, your relatives, either. Or even your boss. So... So both Liz's, I need to remind both of you that it's not your boss, it's the Philistines. <laughs> Although you've been hoping to interpret it that way sometimes. <laughs> no, just kidding, just a joke. Um, so, but the real, but the problem is, if we actually have theological content, we understand that the whole point of the Bible is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus Christ, and so we learn to do what the apostles did. That's why we call it the apostolic hermeneutic. The apostles took every uh, historical narrative of the Old Testament as literally accurate, but 
instead of drawing a point like be more like David, they drew a point that this reveals Christ. And so the real point of David and Goliath is that Jesus is our true David. David the king was a foreshadowing of Christ the king, which Matthew brings out in the very first chapter of the New Testament by tracing uh, 42 generations to Christ that go through Abraham and David. And that Christ is our true Davidic king, and that David was a foreshadowing of Christ. He was a king that God would give to his people that would destroy our Goliaths for us. And that what we needed to do was worship our king, uh, follow our king, and as the Israelites did when, when for, for shadowing of Christ, David the king slayed Goliath, they all ran behind Goliath into battle and, and uh, helped mop up the spoils that Jesus had already won. So the message isn't try harder. The message is the, Philist, the Israelites were right to be cowering uh, from Goliath and the Philistines because they weren't putting their faith in Yahweh. And along came our true king, David, who said, this uncircumcised Philistine, who is he to taunt and mock the living God? I have, that is the foreshadowing of Christ, killed both the bear and the lion. And... Uh, that's why, remember, they tried to equip David with Saul's armor, and David refused to wear it. You know, I used to coach uh, very successfully inner-city baseball teams, and I stressed with the kids, never use a new bat in a game, never use new cleats, never even use a new hat that you haven't worn at quite a few practices and broken in and gotten used to that equipment. You know, Liz should uh, wait to use her new stethoscope till she's practiced with it a little bit, if it's a, especially if it's a life or death situation. And whatever tools you happen to use in your job, you need to, uh, to break them in, so to speak. So, anyway, we've been looking at the continuity between the covenants, and that's an example of it. And so what we've looked at is the, the idea that covenants are immutable. You can't change them. Every new covenant must fulfill the old covenant in order to, uh, in order to, to progress. So the law, when it came through Moses, didn't undo what God promised through Noah or Abraham, nor what he told, gave in the Adamic covenant. And Christ... The meaning of the new covenant is that Christ established all the other covenants of the Bible of which we failed at miserably. And so in every covenant, all covenants are grace. By the way, somebody pointed out that uh, I guess somebody like Douglas Wilson teaches that the, uh, that the Adamic covenant is a covenant of grace. 
Thank because I, I never heard anyone else uh, say that, but it's, of course, very clear that it is. Did Adam create himself? No. Did he choose himself? No. Did he give himself a commission? No. Did he create Eve? No. <laughs> you know, uh, in fact, it, one of the things that, you know, I've learned in marriage counseling if, you're, if the Adam is trying to recreate his own Eve in his own mind, that's a problem. You need to relate to the Eve God gave you, not the one you wanted, the one he wanted for you, because, and he's in, in, in a door and cherish her. So um, the new covenant fulfills the Adamic covenant, the Mosaic, or I'm sorry, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. What am I skipping? Uh, I'm only at four. I said Adamic covenant, Noahic covenant. Did I, say, I must have skipped that. Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant. Uh, and of course, uh, the new covenant fulfills that I skipped the, the very first, the eternal covenant. And the new covenant puts all those in the force. That's why at the very beginning of Jesus' teaching, you know, if you don't know this, Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's supposed to be the starting point of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So in Matthew 4, after Jesus comes through all the temptations in the first 16 verses, in verse 17 of Matthew 4, he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is here, and he begins to make disciples, right? And then he starts to, to heal and everything else, and so his disciples get kind of an initiation to see who Jesus is, right? And it's, so at the end of Matthew 4, we see Jesus casting demons out of multitudes, and Jesus teaching multitudes, and Jesus healing multitudes, and Jesus declaring the kingdom of God is in your midst because I am the king. And so once Jesus introduces the kingdom of God, it says that he went up on a mountain, and the multitudes didn't come to him. The disciples came to him. And... He sat down because that was how they used to teach back then. And opening his mouth, he spent three chapters giving us the introduction, helping us know where the door is. The Sermon on the Mount is the door. And so, like, if you haven't spent, oh, dozens to hundreds of hours Studying the Sermon on the Mount, that's a mistake. Study the Sermon on the Mount because you can't really get started if you don't know where the door is. Right? And so in, the, in, in verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 5, it says he went up the, uh, on the mountain. Then the disciples came to him. So it sets the scene. Then he starts to teach in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's doorway number one. 
So you're not uh, ready uh, to make any progress in the kingdom until you're poor in spirit. It's amazing how many Christians you'll see. You know, there's some people have more social skills than others, so some people are more adept to saying, like, I'm the baddest Christian on the block. I, you know, do this and that and that. And so, but really, it should be like, if there's any competition at all, it should be more like, I'm the worst Christian you've ever met. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, I'm pathetic. <laughs> and, and so, and, you know, and the Lord came to a broken, lost, running from God, wicked, evil, uh, shy. Uh, you know, like I, w- I was, a, I never, I didn't have any points. I never confronted anybody about anything. I didn't have any courage. I was a total follower. I was, I was a scaredy cat. You know, in, uh, I, I uh, took up wrestling in 10th grade because I wanted to play basketball and I was so bad at it that I got cut from the team. But in those days, you had to get a short haircut to, uh, to go out for a sports team. And so I had very long hair, and then I cut it really short to try out for the basketball team. So I figured, as long as uh, I already have short hair, I'll try wrestling. <laughs> and then, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, my hair will grow back in eventually. So, which then I didn't know I'd eventually have no hair. But... Um, I was too young to realize that yet. Uh, and then when it came time for wrestling, at the beginning of the match, they, they stand apart from each other. And the first thing they do is, is they shake hands. And when they shook hands, in my heart, I was saying, what did I ever do to you? Couldn't we just talk this over? <laughs> Maybe this wrestling thing wasn't a very good idea in the front. <laughs> you want to smoke some weed behind the school? <laughs> you know, I, I, I wasn't, uh, I had no courage and no self-esteem. And, and you know, uh, I never made a point because I was too scared of, to have a point. So, and I couldn't, I couldn't give a speech in front of my high school class of, 20 people or whatever, because I was pathetically uh, shy. And uh, so, uh, you know, the Lord, when he intervenes in our life, the first thing he does is he lets you see how bad it is. And, you know, what most religious people are trying to do is trying to convince God themselves and one another that I'm not so bad. Give that up. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So that's the start of being a disciple of Jesus. Unless you see how blind, poor, wretched, remember the Laodicean church, the seventh of the churches, you know, they thought they were pretty together. And Jesus advised them to buy ISAV so that they could see how wretched, blind, dirty, poor, and naked they were. And that's the greatest gift God can, can give you is uh, whatever kind of troubles it takes. One of the funniest things in ministry, I always, when I'm trying to help someone coming to Christ, the first thing I listen for is how confident are they in themselves. 
because I found some of the most troubled people are the hardest to lead because it doesn't really matter how messed up you are. It matters how much you can see that you're messed up. And I, I have dealt with like alcoholics that were so pathetic that they no longer even ate food. Uh, if they, if when they ate any food at all, it would be like don't day old donuts or whatever, uh, because they, you know, kind of crave carbs and, and you know, they might weigh like 110 pounds even though they're six foot six or you know, and they're just like their whole life is so in shambles that you're like, you know, like surely this person uh, could, and, but you know what? Sometimes you can't help a person like that when they're very confident in of themselves. You know, the first person that we reached out to when we started this church, we started in, in our basement with wifey. Hi there, wifey. And uh, our four kids who were 16 through 11 at the time. And, uh, and I started going to the jail on Sunday nights and sharing the gospel, which was kind of fun because I'd never been in jail and so it's like when they, when they start locking the doors behind you and stuff, you're like, I hope they intend to let me out when we're down here. <laughs> it's a little, little scary sometimes at, at first, at least the first time it was. And, uh, you know, I met a guy who was um, not, not only poorly educated, he, was, he had such anger management problems that he would get drunk and get arrested and he actually developed it into a system where he would uh, get drunker in the fall and get in because he would always get in fights when he got drunk and then he would count on getting arrested because he was homeless and the jail was warm in the winter time and by during the winter he'd write his all his letters and get his food stamps lined up and everything like that so that he'd be ready to go when he got let out in the spring <laughs> you know that was his way of life and uh, he was, uh, interestingly, one of the most know-it-all people that I've ever worked with. That was the hardest thing to, uh, to, uh, to help him with, is he was very self-confident. Even though most people would look at him and say, where's the basis for this self-confidence? So all that's to say... The first beatitude, blessed is the poor in spirit. You know, then he goes on, blessed is the, those who mourn and so forth. And he goes all the way through. And then the second subject that he takes up is that he's uh, some metaphors for the church, where a city sit on the hill, where the light of the world and so forth. Then the third subject Jesus takes up in verse 17 of Matthew 5. He says, um, um, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. The very message that, he, he contradicts the very message that evangelicals teach. And so, he's, but he, he goes on to say that every jot and tittle of the law is extremely important. And whoever teaches against the law, which is what the current church does, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps the law will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, so if you uh, don't get the point, you will read that and you'll go, man, 
I should try harder to keep the law. But that's what Israel had done since Exodus 19 when they said, everything that you said will do. And the whole point is Israel keeps failing and he keeps sending them prophets to call them back to faithfulness to the covenant Lord, to their husband, to their father, to the vine keeper, all sorts of metaphors for God that are used again in the New Testament by Jesus. I'm the vine, you're the vine dresser. Did Jesus invent that in John 15? No, he's just taking it from the Old Testament prophets, right? So um, then Jesus, um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, You know, basically uh, Jesus' entire ministry was confronting a bunch of sects, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots. Um, who am I leaving out? Who, the, the Essenes and, uh, and so forth. And all of them basically had the idea that we keep the law ourselves. The Sadducees were very boastful of the fact that they didn't uh, interpret the law as harshly and narrowly as those fundamentalist Pharisees. Sound familiar? You can get that in most Episcopalian churches today. Right? Same thing, same ideas. Uh, You can go to most fundamentalist churches and get the ideas of the Pharisees. But the whole point is that you're destined to fail until you live in and through and from and with the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ as your source. Until you reach Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know, but in the life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So, you know, the truth is, I'm glad to tell you, I'm a pathetic Christian. And if you take into account that God, in Romans 12, it says that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And God gives certain revelations. Remember, Paul was able to say that he had not been disobedient to the heavenly revelation. Well, my whole life has been uh, falling short of what I ought to have been because of the call of God and and the revelation and so forth. And it, it has been for the purpose of learning humility. And when I'm humble, Christ does amazing things. With me, in me, through me, and so forth, because he's amazing. And guess what? I'm not. Right? So, um, anyway, so the, the, the truth of the matter is we've been looking at this whole idea of the continuity of the covenants. And we looked at it five different ways, and I'm going to write a book on it, hopefully sometime in the next few years, if I can uh, have my way with getting certain people on staff. We'll start getting those books cranked out. 
Um, so what, where we left off last week, and uh, where I'm going to have to leave off again, is we were at the Living New Testament Practice and Tradition. So maybe I can actually cover that a little bit. Um, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Who were those? Their names were people, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and so forth, right? And then he left one untimely born named Paul. And some of those you'll kill and some you'll crucify. Guess what? Of the original 12 apostles, John was the only one who died of old age. All the rest were killed. And they weren't just killed by the Romans. The, the James and several of the others were actually killed by the Judaizers who f- followed the apostles from city to city trying to, uh, to undermine their message. And they disliked the apostles for the same re- reason they disliked Jesus. Because he testified to them that their deeds were evil. And they saw themselves as all that God has said we will do. Which again is, is, is more wicked than you can ever imagine. And so they persecuted the apostles from one city to another. And this, this statement about the blood of righteous Abel, get, we already talked in this message, so we, and we're out of time, so I'm, but we compared the blood of Abel to the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Now, that's an amazing statement, if you don't know this. Does anybody know why? Because it hadn't happened yet. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, was, was uh, not even born yet. He was killed during the siege of Jerusalem by Titus and his armies. And it's covered in the writings of Josephus. Who, and so um, John 16 I, is uh, every preacher's favorite verse. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's why at 9.30 you get a break because I have to stop at 9.30. Where's 10.30 meeting? Not so much. Uh, <laughs> so um, so here's, here's the important point. Jesus is a very, very much like um, Socrates. Socrates, uh, from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, uh, actually, Socrates, ne- never actually wrote anything. He taught in, the, in the, the, the academe, the school in Athens, and among his students were Aristophanes and Plato. And Plato wrote down a lot of what Socrates taught. Jesus never wrote any books. But uh, 
the, the two books written by Luke and the, two, and the 13 books written by Paul are 15 of the New Testament books that were not written by someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus. All the other books of the New Testament, the other um, seven, I don't know, I'm losing my, my math here, 7 minus 15 is 12. The other 12 books are written by guys like Matthew, Mark. Mark was the, the young man who fled in the Gospel of Mark in the, in the Garden of... Uh, and his mother was uh, the person who held the prayer meeting at her house that's in Acts chapter 4 and 5 and so forth. And Mark was Barnabas's cousin. And he's sometimes called John Mark in the New Testament. And Peter when he was under arrest in Rome, asked Mark to write a, a gospel. And Mark is actually Peter's gospel. So it's uh, written uh, with Peter's help and instruction. Uh, John, of course, was an eyewitness and so forth. James and Jude were the Lord's brothers. They were eyewitnesses to many of the events, although they didn't travel with the disciples during the uh, life of Christ. And so by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, uh, you know, the things Jesus taught were, were, were held among the community of disciples, which included about 120 people, according to Acts 1, 14 and 15. And it included many women who traveled with them. And these ideas were considered so important that even in Jesus' lifetime, they memorized them, they took notes on them, they discussed them and so forth. And out of that, uh, Jesus begins to teach the church. And in the first generation of the church, the whole point of the New Testament is there's this transition where Jesus has prophesied on the Mount of Olives. He's prophesied the coming destruction of Jerusalem. That's in Matthew chapters 23, 24, 25. It's in Mark chapter 13 and 14. It's actually spread around in Luke. Uh, but uh, Jesus is uh, doing, uh, fulfilling an Old Testament thing. Remember when they stood on Mount Ebal and they quoted the law back and forth to one another? Jesus is actually standing on the Mount of Olives on purpose for, as a prophetic gesture, uh, pointing toward Mount Zion, towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, and he's prophesying, I'm done with Jerusalem, Judea, and the people of Israel, and I'm uh, over the, this generation will not pass away. A generation in the Bible is 40 years. We don't know because of various things whether Jesus died in 30 AD or 33 AD. Uh, that, that's a whole, you can read, lot, there's lots of debates about that in books and so forth that you can read, but we do know it was one of those two years. And 70 A.D. is 40 years exactly from 30 A.D. And it's, it's most likely that Jesus died in 30 A.D., which would fit because the Scripture says that he was about 30 years old when he went into his public ministry. He did his public ministry for three and a half years, and we know he was born in the year 4 B.C. And so uh, all of that fits very well. And in fact... Uh, if you do all the math from the appearing of, of the angel to uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's uh, father, and so forth, Jesus would have been born about December 25th. Uh, people say that that was just a made-up date, not necessarily. Uh, 
And uh, although there's prophetic significance to why they chose that date, that's uh, you know beyond the time we have here. And so um, the whole point of the New Testament is that old people of Israel is is the kingdom is being taken away from them and it's being given to this new ecclesia I will build my church Jesus said and Jesus is building a new type of people he's building a city within the cities a people within the peoples he's building a separate people that in every geographical location will be the light of that city. They're the city that enlightens the city. And they're called the church. And that's the whole point of the New Testament all to- together is the, this, I, this modern Christianity where your church is just somewhat of an afterthought is just uh, missing the whole point of, of walking with God altogether. Other than whether you're going to choose Jesus or not, the next most important thing is what group of Christians are you going to do that with? You cannot even fulfill one one one-thousandth of the calling of God on your life without being part of the people you're supposed to do it with. That's the whole point of the New Testament. And they're a, they're a city set on the hill. They're the light of the world. They're a lamp on a lampstand. There's lots and lots of metaphors for that for the church. But unlike modern Christianity, where you uh, walk with God, you and me and myself, I and Jesus, and I attend a church that's sort of an afterthought compartment of my life, is just a nonsense kind of approach to, that misses the whole point of the Bible altogether. Like who you're going to uh, covenant with, who you're going to be in family with, the church is a family of families. It's a people for God's own possession. We're supposed to have a way of life that causes the people around us to say, wow, you guys really love each other. Wow, you guys really serve each other. Wow, you guys don't have any divorce rate. Wow, your guys' kids are coming out right. Wow, like things are working for you people. (laughs) Like, take me to your leader. I want that. That's the whole point of the New Testament.